Thank you. Morning, everyone. Everyone doing okay? Good. Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, It's my uh, birthday next week. Hint, hint, exactly. I've got the microphone, so uh, 21 again next week. So um, so I, I got an early birthday present from my mother-in-law. Um, she paid for me to get a ticket to go and watch my beloved Brighton and Hove Albion play Aston Villa yesterday. If, if you know, you know. And so... Uh, <laughs> I know. So, I, I, happy birthday, Phil. So, I, I, I drove up to Birmingham yesterday. I've never been to Villa Park before. Um, I was in the away end with the Brighton fans. Like, it was, it, was, it was great. About 10 minutes in, it was great. And then it all went to pieces because we lost 6 1. <laughs> 6 1. So, happy birthday, Phil. So if, if my voice sounds slightly croaky, it's because I spent most of the match bemoaning the injustice that is in the football universe. I, hate, I now hate football. It's a stupid game, and you should never, ever watch it ever again. I hate football. It's unjust. <laughs> Happy birthday. I want my money back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to call my mother-in-law, say, can I have my money back and get something different? Because that was not a happy birthday. But anyway, let's pray, shall we? Jesus, we thank you that even when our teams lose, you never do. (laughs) We thank you that you're the victorious one. Thank you that you've defeated Satan. You've defeated death. You've defeated the powers of darkness. Thank you that you are Christus Victor. Lord, every enemy is under your feet. And Lord, we now stand victorious in Jesus. Lord, thank you that we can face every enemy, every circumstance in the face and say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. He's crowned with many crowns. I have a hope that goes beyond the grave. And Lord, we thank you that you are with us right now. We thank you the God of the universe is with us in this room right now. You need to know that Christus Victor, Jesus, the victorious one, he's in the room right now. And he has defeated every enemy that you and I would ever face. And so I just pray for you right now, pray in your life that you would experience the victory of Jesus. You would experience the victory of Jesus. I pray for that right now. I pray just faith for your circumstances right now. I pray that you'd be able to face them this week knowing that Jesus is with you. Jesus has everything that you and I need for life and for godliness. So God, come, we pray. Lord, as we, as we listen to your word today, Father, let it not just be information and just words and ideas and happy time. Lord, we pray, let your word do us good and change us from the inside out. We just pray for a Holy Spirit encounter moment as we come to the word of God. Lord, do us good. We thank you that your word is always living and active. It's living and active this morning, right now. It's living and active and has the power to change those that will receive it with faith and put it into practice in their lives. And so I pray this morning that we would be blessed because we hear the word, we receive it with faith, and we say, Father, what are we going to do about it? So God, we give this morning to you in the Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in a series in the book of Galatians. Um, and uh, if you've not been with us so far, we are going to basically working our way through what is one of the most important letters in the New Testament. And it was a letter written by a man called the Apostle Paul, who was one of the foremost Christian leaders in the first church when it was first uh, kind of born in the Middle East. And he's writing a letter to churches in a region. So when you read Galatians, don't think that he's just writing to one church, but Galatia was a region. So it'd be like he's writing to the churches in Bedfordshire. 
Okay, that's what he's doing when he's writing this letter. And we know that there were at least four churches that he's writing to. Uh, these were churches that he started with his buddy Barnabas, um, traveling through the Galatian region. They planted churches in places like, like Lystra and Derby, not to be confused with Derby, um, Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch. These were big cities in Galatia. And Paul is now writing to these Christians. And modern day times, this would kind of be where, where Turkey is. So you think where Turkey is on the map, this is where the region of Galatia was. And so one of Paul's good friends, for example, Timothy, he was from Derby. So uh, Timothy was Turkish. Um, and Paul is writing to some very, very good friends because these are churches that he started, he established. He knew the people in these churches. And so he's writing to them in this letter to, to commend them and give them instruction. And what we know is that Galatians is probably the earliest existing letter that we have from the Apostle Paul. So we know that he's been a Christian for at least 14 years, but this is the first letter that we have in existence that he wrote. And as with a lot of first letters, sometimes we wouldn't put things the way we did in our first letters. I don't know if you've ever gone back and reread, I don't know, maybe you've kept your old love letters. Or, you know, you, you, go, you occasionally come across an old email or a text that you sent and you think, not sure I'd say it in quite that way if I had my time over. Well, Galatians is a bit like that because the Apostle Paul is kind of in it, the infancy of his leadership. And so in Galatians, he has the least amount of filters and the least amount of nuance in the way that he communicates. He's just like, just put it all on the table. You're a bunch of idiots. Like, it's, it's kind of like that kind of flavor. It's, it's like an early letter, and I, I was just reading some early letters that um, parents had received from their children this week. It was just making me giggle, because if you're a parent, you know, and your kid draws you a little house drawing or a little stick figure, mummy, this is you, you keep those, don't you? You stick them in a drawer, and you kind of look at them occasionally, and so parents were sharing their first letters from their kids, so this was what one kid wrote. Um, Dear mum, I'm running away because you think I farted when I didn't. <laughs> and then he wrote as an afterthought in, in kind of wax crayon, plus you are really mean. So that was the first letter. I hope that was a blessing to his mum. And another guy, Brendan, uh, wrote a letter to his mum saying, thank you, mum, for making me food so that I don't die. <laughs> touching first letter to receive. Uh, another touching first letter. Mum, I'm angry at you, and I'm not talking to, today, to you today or tomorrow. P.S. Like all day. P.S.S. But I still love you. That was nice, wasn't it? First letters. First letters kind of give you a window on someone's like personality and like early priorities. And yes, that might mature over time, but often they're like a window on who someone is. And Paul is no different. In this letter to the Galatians, we get this window on kind of what he's like and the things that he prioritized and the way that he thought. And in particular, Galatians is a window on what he thought about Christian leadership. Christian leadership. It tells us the kind of values that he was wanting to live by, and it comes out almost through every word in every line in the letter to the Galatians. And in particular this, that Christian leadership, leadership in the kingdom of God, is not primarily organizational, but it's relational. Can we just say that again? Leadership in the kingdom is not primarily organizational or hierarchical or superiority, but leadership in the kingdom is about relationships with people. 
And this is the way Paul writes this particular letter and starts to express the values that he has. And so let's, let's read a whole chunk of stuff together and then try and explain what it means. So Galatians chapter 2. After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus also along. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, thank you Jesus, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false teachers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and make us again slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Now, he's not being petulant when he says that. He's just saying, my message was complete, and they said, right on, Paul, you're preaching the right message. That's what he means there. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very e the thing I've been eager to do all along. All right, what does all of that <laughs> tell us about Paul's relational leadership values? Well, here's value number one. Leadership is always best done in team. Leadership is best done in team. He starts the chapter two by saying, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem and this time I took Barnabas and Titus also came along. And so Paul here is giving us a window into the way he operated, which was this. He was not a leader just flying solo, but he was a guy who wanted his friends and his team around him because he understood that doing everything in team is a much more effective way of living. It's how God designed us to be. He didn't design you to be an island. He designed you to be interconnected with other people that you do life with. Thank you. That's what I was looking for, and I got it. Thank you. That's how God created us. He created us to have genuine relationships of connection and partnership with people who perhaps see the world differently than you do. You understand that you're not called to build an echo chamber with people that just think like you do. The best way to live life is to have people in your life that see the world perhaps differently than you do and have different gifts and have different perspectives on the world. That is healthy, to have people in your orbit like that. And for Paul, it was exactly the same. I think this next picture is one of uh, my favorite pictures, not this one, the next one, pictures of Christian leadership. Uh, this is the, the giant Californian sequoia redwood tree. So these are the largest trees on planet Earth. So the oldest one is 2,500 years old. So it was there before Jesus was born. That's, 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 that's an old tree by anyone's standards. And the largest of these trees is, I think, 275 feet in the air. I mean, just huge trees. Uh, apparently, like the, the, if you put two Toyota Priuses together, like that's about the width of one of these trees. Like that, huge things. They're fireproof. 
They're not easily knocked over in a storm. They are literally the strongest tree on planet Earth. And there's whole forests of these things next to each other. And the key to a Californian redwood tree's strength is what happens underneath the surface. And it's not because their roots go deep down, but go very broad across. And they connect with the root system of all the other trees around them. So in effect, they are holding one another together to give themselves core strength. They are interdependent, and their strength comes from that. And to me, this is a picture of how leadership and Christian life should be, should be lived. That we're meant to do life interconnected with one another, joined in our root system, known by others, loved by others, in partnership with others, trusting others. This is how Paul wanted to, to do his life. And, and because of that, as you read his life, he just lists a whole bunch of people all the time that he is working with, traveling with, doing life with. He has a whole list of names. Timothy, Silas, Barnabas, Luke, Titus, John Mark, Titius, Aristarchus, Epaphras. If you read the letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 16, he spends a whole chapter just saying hello to people. That's in your Bible for a reason. He, he, I think it's 28 separate people Roman greet, uh, and Paul greets in Romans chapter 16. I think 17 of them are men, 11 of them are women. Um, Craig Keener makes an interesting observation. He says, although there's twice as many men as women in that passage, Paul says hello to the men, but he commends twice as many women as he does men. I'm just going to let that just, just drop. Because for Paul, he wanted effective partnership and team between men and women that carried gifts in the kingdom and could bring different things to the party. Paul was not a misogynist. He, was, he, he wasn't a chauvinist. He, he was like, I need gifted men and women in my orbit who bring different things to me. And interestingly, the letter to the Romans is entrusted to an amazing female leader called Phoebe. She was a, a deacon. And Paul gives possibly the deepest letter of theology that people for 2,000 years have been trying to explain to Phoebe as a letter carrier. Now, we've got to understand letter carriers in the ancient world weren't just the postal service. They delivered the letter, but then they read the letter and explained its contents to the hearers. So he's entrusting this amazing theology to his dear friend Phoebe, who takes it into Rome, reads it to the Roman Christians, and then explains what it means. What's the point? Paul did everything in team. He did everything in team because he understood it's more fun, it's more effective. You know, if you just get me, you get all of my strengths, but you also get all of my weaknesses. But in team, we make each other stronger. We make each other stronger. And one of the things I love about being in this team at King's Arms is just the diversity and the breadth and how different we are. Like just this week on Tuesday, I was in a, uh, a leaders meeting here in, in one of the other rooms. And, you know, in worship times, I'm just like, I just want to get locked in with Jesus. I just want to hear what he's saying. But I happened to open my eyes and there was PJ and he had empty water jugs and he was going out to fill them up. And I just thought, that's just PJ all over. I just, he spots the empty water jugs and he goes and fills them because he's a servant. He spots the things that need to be done that no one else spots. He's about the people. How can we make people feel welcome? How can we keep them hydrated so that they can, can worship? And I'm like, I wasn't thinking about the water jugs at all. But I'm glad someone was. 
You know, I think about my friend Steve, one of the other elders in the church. You know, he, he, I love his evangelistic heart. You know, he has like ideas like, let's hire a helicopter and drop 10,000 Easter eggs on Bedford Park. I kid you not, that was a real idea in one of our team meetings. And there's a hundred of them almost every year. We could do this, we could do that. How are we going to reach lost people? How are we going to get people in? We can invite them into Alpha by Easter eggs. I'm like, well, why not? I never would have thought that way. But I'm glad somebody does. You know, I, I remember the, one of the first times I, I was chatting to Simon and, I, and I, I was just sharing this idea. I was like, oh, I, I, maybe we should get some prophetic people together. I think it might be quite good. I think literally the next week, Simon had booked a venue. He'd booked a date. He'd invited speakers. He'd pretty much booked my train ticket down and he'd made it happen. And I was just like, what is this leadership gifts that, that we have an idea and then it happens? And I love that about Simon. I'm so grateful to be on team with people who think differently and who look differently and carry different gifts than us. That's the way it should be. Because when our root system joins together, we have a strength that we never have on our own. You know, here's, here's a picture just here. Uh, you're probably wondering who the guy in the funny hat is, but um, just an example of this. I, I was in Paris a few weeks ago and part of my role is helping to support churches in, in other places and a few times I've taken my friend Dom Llewellyn with me. Some of you will know Dom. He was part of this church for, for numbers of years. He's now in Newcastle. And um, I, I've taken Dom to Paris largely because he's so different than me. And he's a good friend, but he is so different than me. And he, he has a grid and a filter on the world that is almost the opposite to me, which is that he is just all about the people. He's like, people, people, people. Connect, connect, connect. Influence, influence, influence. Where are the people? Let's get time with the people. Let's spend lots of time talking and drinking coffee and seeing and connecting. So an example, we, we on, on Thursday morning of the trip, we had a couple of hours free in the morning. The day before, we'd been chaining leadership meetings. We had two hours free. And I'm thinking, thank you, Jesus. I'm an introvert. I need to read a book. I need to listen to a podcast. I need to just sit quietly and learn something. I might even catch up on my emails. I'm just going to sit on my own somewhere and do those things. Dom is thinking, who can we connect with? That is, so he, and, he, and he's like, Phil, I know what we should do. He's like, we should visit Thierry, who's the guy in the middle of this picture. Thierry is one of the elders in Paris, and he's an amazing chocolatier. If you ever go to Paris, go and visit Thierry's shop. I, I'm just the, most, the best chocolate you will ever taste in the history of the universe. And he's one of the elders, but he's also, he runs a chocolate business and he has a, has a shop. And so Dom's like, we, we've never visited there. Why don't we go? I think it would really mean a lot to him. And so, you know, we get an Uber, we try and hot foot it across Paris, which is a mission in itself. We find Thierry's shop, we go in and we get to pray for him. We meet his daughter, we get to pray for her, we pray for his business, he gives us free ice cream, we, we buy chocolates from him as gifts. And, and, and I'll be honest, it's, it's the deepest connection moment I have ever had with Thierry when I stepped foot in his business, in his world, and bless what God had called him to do. And that never would have happened if I hadn't worked in team with someone else. That's how God's created us. You need people who are different than you. So this was Paul's first kind of re relational leadership value. And you know, one of the other beautiful gifts about working in team with others is it helps keep you out of deception. One of the areas that most frequently causes deception for us as Christians is when we get isolated from other Christians or where you just build an echo chamber to only hear opinions that are like your own. I love what Chris Vallison says. He says, the way to stay out of deception is to develop a relationship where you trust someone else more than you trust yourself. 
because the nature of deception is that you don't know you're being deceived. You need someone in your life, someone in your orbit who loves you enough and you trust enough who can say, you're being a wally. You're not quite seeing things straight. I'm not sure that's the whole story. We all need people like that in our lives, don't we? Just nudge someone next to you and say, you particularly need that. All right, next point. We won't labor this one, but Paul, Paul basically says, listen, leadership is a response to revelation from Jesus. He says, I went to Jerusalem in response to a revelation. In other words, his first priority is, I relate to Jesus and I do what he tells me. So before he's a servant to anybody else, he's firstly a servant of Jesus Christ. And he's living life in response to what God has told him to do. How many of you understand that is a primary, primary value if you are a leader or a Christian in the kingdom. I'm here to do what he tells me. Because this is Jesus' model. I do nothing except what I see the Father doing. And this is what Paul's doing here. He's responding to a revelation. This is so, so crucial. We're a prophetic people. We're led by him. We're led by the voice of God. You know, and again, very early on in my, my life, I remember just kind of learning the value of not just hearing God's word, but putting it into practice. Because you understand that very often God's revelations come to us in seed form to see if you're going to do something with it or not. God rarely gives you an apple tree. He'll give you a pip. Contained in that pip is an apple tree if you'll look after it and do something with it. Many of us, I would suggest, receive the apple pip, the promises from God, and then we, 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 we discard it. We stick it in a drawer and shut it away. But actually, revelation comes to us that we might do something with it. Yeah, you understand that between the promise and the palace is a process. And the process is us committing to cooperate with God and put into practice what he's called us to do. And so I remember learning this principle as an 18-year-old. I was uh, on a year project in America, and I foolishly told my project leader that I had, God had called me to prophesy and that God had called me to preach. Foolishly, I told my team leader this, and he held me to it the whole year. So I, I remember like, failing to prepare a, a sermon for a youth meeting, and I was, I was getting so anxious, so nervous, and I picked up the phone to my friend Lex, and I was like, Lex, it's going so badly. Like, I, just, I don't think I can do it. I need you to step in. Like, I've got nothing. I've literally got nothing. And the youth meeting was in like an hour or two hours' time. I was like, Lex, please rescue me. Have you got anything that you can bring? And this is what he said to me. He said, Phil, has God called you to preach? And I was like, yeah. He's like, well, get on with it then. And he put the phone down. <laughs> that was his only advice. Get on with it then. What was his point? Phil, God's given you a revelation. Put it into practice. Put it, do something with what God has given you and it will grow into something. You know, it's it the same on another occasion. We were heading towards um, a maximum security prison in Missouri. And uh, I was, we were in the car and we were going to go and share the gospel with with, uh, with some guys there, and I was super nervous, like just super, super, I was 18 year old, like I, the only thing I was thankful for is that I wasn't responsible to actually do anything once we got there. I'm like, I'm just, I'm here for the ride, I'm just gonna be an observer in the background, let you guys get on with your stuff. But then 20 minutes before we arrive, Lex, my team leader, starts giving out roles in the car. And so he says to my friend Steve, Steve, when we get there, perhaps you could just share your testimony how you came to, to know Jesus. Steve's like, yeah, I can do that. And then he goes to my friend Dan, who's a gifted musician. He says, Dan, could you lead some songs and lead a time of worship? Dan's like, yeah. And then he comes to me, and I'm thinking, here we go. 
Is that Phil? Could he just prophesy over all the inmates? And I'm like, you what? You want me to do what? He's like, could he prophesy over all the inmates? Like just personal, maybe one prophetic word for every single one of them. Would that be okay? I'm like, what? And what was he doing? He was pulling on what he knew God had called me to do. And friends, for each of us, we've got a responsibility to ask, what has God said to me? And what am I going to do about it? Between the promise and the palace is a process. We have to cooperate with God. Thirdly, you doing okay? Yeah? All right, good. Leadership is accountable to others. Meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Now, the New Testament uses the race analogy quite a lot for Christian life. It says Christian life is like a race. We need to run the race in such a way as to get the prize. And Paul here, early in his Christian leadership, is saying, here is one of the keys to you running your race well. You must have a life that is accountable to other people. This is one of his keys. He's like, in order for me to not run my race in vain, I presented my gospel to some other people to check that I was doing the right thing. And he was able to say at the end of his life, if you read 2 Timothy, he said, I have finished the race, I have won the prize, I have fought the good fight. So he's an effective model for leadership of running the race well. And right at the start, he gives us a key. If you want to run your race well, make sure that you're accountable to other people. There's two reasons for this. And let me just say, just by way of illustration, accountability in the kingdom is invited, not imposed. Accountability in the kingdom is invited, not imposed. So it doesn't work that I come to you and say, hey, pal, you need to be accountable to me. I'm your leader. That's not how it works in the kingdom. In the kingdom, we invite authority into our lives and say, would you speak into my life? I invite that because it's relational authority, not hierarchical authority. Does that make, you understand? That's how it works in the kingdom, is we invite people to say, would you speak into my life? I'd, I'd love you to tell me the truth, help me, speak into what I'm called to do. It's invited, not imposed. And there's two reasons why accountability is so important. The first is this, you cannot exercise authority until you are under authority. You can't exercise authority until you're under authority. Paul understood this. It's the kingdom principle that independence does not advance the kingdom. If you tap into the spirit of independence, your ability to flow in the anointing of the spirit and to advance the kingdom will be limited because we're called to do life together and we need help and partnership with others. This is the way the kingdom works. It's a family, not a business. Anyone? It's a family, not a business. And so we have a father who has authority that we are submitting our lives to. You remember the story of Jesus who encounters a centurion, a Roman soldier, a hard man, someone who was leading up to a hundred troops. And he has this amazing encounter with Jesus. Here's what happens as he asks, as he tells Jesus about a servant at home that is critically sick. Jesus offers to come and pray for him. But this is what the centurion says. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, 
Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This centurion had a revelation that not many other people around had seen. In the same way that he had authority because he was under a Roman emperor, he understood Jesus could only exercise authority because he was under the authority of his father. You cannot exercise authority unless you're willing to come under authority. And then lastly, we're gonna land. We need people who can help us give account for our ability. What is accountability? Well, it's not just people checking that we haven't been naughty. <laughs> you know, we talk sometimes about holding people to account, and that's, that's good, that's right, we should ask questions. But accountability is not just people checking that we haven't sinned, we haven't disobeyed God, but it's actually people who can help us give an account for the abilities that God has given us. People who understand what we're called to and can say, come on, do that. And so as Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's saying, listen, Peter, I am called to go to the Gentiles. And they receive the right hand of fellowship as the apostles say, go for it, Paul. This is who God's made you to be. They are helping give an account for his ability. Alison Armadine says, I love listening to other people's prophecies so that I can treat them not as they are, but how God sees them and I can help invite them into their destiny. You've got people in your life who know what you're called to, who know the promises that you carry from God. Accountability is having people around you who can say, come on, go for it. Stay in your lane, run your race, do what God has called you to do and can cheer you on. That's what the Christian life looks like. So these are some of the relational values in Paul's thinking when it comes to leadership. Amen. Why don't we stand? Let's pray.